From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis is fighting back against the latest motion to dismiss her from the election conspiracy case. Lawyers for Donald Trump say cell phone data shows that Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis have misrepresented facts about their personal relationship. I'm Tia Mitchell in Washington. Nikki Haley is campaigning in Michigan after another landslide loss to Donald Trump, this one in her home state, South Carolina. And we're headed to the Super Tuesday states throughout all of next week. But Haley's now lost financial support of the Koch Brothers political network, Americans for Prosperity. We'll ask Eric Tannenblatt, one of Haley's most influential Georgia backers, what's next for her campaign. I'm Greg Bluestein. After a suspected undocumented immigrant was charged with the murder of Athens student Lakin Riley, Republican lawmakers are pursuing a series of measures targeting illegal immigration. And Governor Kemp is here in Athens calling on President Biden to shut down the U.S. border with Mexico. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Welcome to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia, where we aim to set the stakes and the agenda for Georgia politics. I'm Bill Nygut, joined by co-hosts Tia Mitchell. Tia, you're now back in Washington in your apartment and back on your beat covering the Capitol. Uh, Do you miss us already? I do. And I especially miss the weather was so beautiful last week in Atlanta and it was pretty cold here. So I miss that. But back on the ground, we've got a government shutdown possibly to cover. Yeah. Coming up Friday. We'll watch that closely and look forward to talking to you more about it as the week progresses. And Greg Bluestein it's not enough that you spent like what four days in South Carolina covering the South Carolina Republican primary, which concluded on Saturday night. Now you're back. You're in Athens. You were covering Governor Kemp this morning. Uh, Blusin, you are always on the move. And right now I'm in the lovely WUGA studios in Athens. So and, and there's an unfortunate reason I'm here, of course, that we'll talk about later, but I'm always glad to be in Athens. Well, we're awfully glad that you could take the time to be with us today as well. Um, You know, uh, one of the things that I personally love about the fact that we are a live radio show at 10 in the morning, I I understand many of you really listen to us on the podcast because you can't get to a radio at 10 in the morning quite often. So we love our podcast listeners. But Greg and Tia, one of the great things about being live is we can react in real time to important news. And that's exactly what happened on Friday, just about 45 minutes before we went on the air. Our great Trump conspiracy election team, Shannon McCaffrey, Bill Rankin, Dave Wicker, Tamar Hallerman, broke another huge story. We're going to talk about that now. We were able to talk about it a bit on Friday because we were live. 
Shannon McCaffrey is with us now because we have developments in this story. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me back. So, Shannon, very quickly, let me just state uh, the simplest in the simplest terms what this new filing by Steve Sadow, uh, Donald Trump's attorney, alleges. They studied cell phone data, which suggested, in the broadest terms, a couple of things to them about the relationship between Fonnie Willis um, and Nathan Wade. One is that um, they that they the cell phone data puts Nathan Wade um, in the proximity of Fonnie Willis's home at a time much sooner than they say have said in court di- uh, filings that they started a relationship together. Um, it suggests that he may have spent overnights there with her, um, and then beyond that. It also talks about literally thousands of text messages between uh, the two of them as well. So Steve Sadow is arguing this is yet another reason why um, Fonnie Willis should be disqualified from pursuing the case. That's, I think, the simplest way of talking about this. Yes. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, You know, just to just to clarify one thing, the cell phone records do show that his cell phone was there, not necessarily Nathan Wade, although that could be a distinction without a difference. Um, They certainly haven't argued that he did not have his cell phone at that time at those. So, you know, there's nothing to suggest he wasn't with it at this time. So, um, Greg Bluestein, one of the reasons this is a particular concern, I assume, is because both Willis and Wade um, have said that the beginning of their relationship wasn't until after she had hired him uh, to be the special prosecutor. And if they said that in court or in in affidavits to the court, um, if this data proves to be true, and as Shannon points out, there are still lots of questions about it, um, they've basically committed perjury. Yeah, if, they, if there's anything that contradicts their sworn testimony, there'll be an ulcer to legal hot water. But as Shannon mentioned, they responded in force after we were on the radio on Friday, um, basically casting all sorts of doubt about this technology that was used to track Nathan Wade's whereabouts and uh, insisting again that there was nothing, uh, that they were not untruthful at all. Shannon, how did they respond specifically? Yeah, so we got a response from them pretty late on Friday night. Um, I can tell you that because I had to leave a dinner to get it to get it out. Um, but they uh, they they um, they basically said that two arguments. One is that they don't think the evidence is admissible. Um, that they. Um, that they was filed after certain deadlines, that it's disingenuous for them to try to enter in this new evidence. So that's the argument that it shouldn't go in. However, they also address the question of, you know, if it does go in, what is it? And there they argued that not show that, that anything more than that they were in the same place at the same time. I mean, we still don't know what happened on any of these visits. We don't know if they were romantic on any of these visits. Um, they're questioning, you know, whether or not the technology shows what it does. Um, you know, the investigator who did this uh, analysis said he put up a, you know, what they call a geofence and a pretty conservative geofence around the condo in Hapeville where Fonnie Willis was um, that would have eliminated, uh, you know, many other possibilities. But, you know, this is also a condo that's close to the airport. It's close to restaurants. It's close to uh, hotels and other attractions. So, 
you know, um, I'm not a techno, I'm not a, a, a technology expert. We talked to several. Some of them say this is completely reliable and has been used in court. Who said they um, they really kind of went too far with the conclusions they made? So, you know, it, it's going to be interesting to see how how Judge McAfee um, views all this uh, this week. Kia. Yeah, Shannon, I wanted to ask you about those next steps involving Judge McAfee. Um, There's a hearing. Is it this week or next week? Can you just kind of tell us when Judge McAfee will have this matter back in court and when we might hear from him on his reaction to the testimony? Yeah. So we know that are going to happen this week now that there certainly could be added to the calendar every time we think we've got our arms around what's happening, um, some new uh, sub. But um, today, later today, the judge will be holding um, an in-camera hearing, and that basically just means it's the judge, you know, privately in chambers. He'll be meeting with um, Terrence Bradley and Terrence Bradley's attorney. Terrence Bradley um, is the former law partner of Nathan Wade, who was for a time his divorce attorney. And what they're going to be talking about is whether or not anything um, Mr. Bradley said uh, it was protected by attorney-client privilege actually is. Um, the judge wants to get a, a sense of what he knows and and get a, a you know, a, a read on whether or not attorney-client privilege is being used properly here. So that's going to happen this afternoon. Um, we will be staking out the courthouse. I don't We'll get any um, answer on what uh, what that decision is, or if a decision will be made today, because that is a private hearing. Um, but we, you know, we should know soon what the result of that is. But then the bigger step is on Friday. So on Friday, um, we have a hearing scheduled where the plan is to have the attorneys who were participating in the two day evidentiary hearing um, to kind of make closing arguments to sum up their points um, and to try to persuade the one way or the other. So um, that's set to happen on Friday. How this new evidence will play into that is anyone's guess at this point. Shannon, uh, you spent part of your weekend working on this, but also part of your weekend working with Tamar Hallerman and, and me on a different angle, the political threat that Fannie Willis could face. She's the odds on favorite to serve a second term. She's going to qualify to run for office in a week from now. Uh, but a strong challenger could give her all sorts of political headaches, right? I mean, could could basically try to turn this this election into a proxy fight over how she's handling the case. That's exactly right. And, you know, no matter how the court decides things, like let, let's just, you know, assume for, for uh, argument's sake that the judge says this is fine. You know, we can move forward. Uh, the DA's office is not disqualified. If she has a strong Republican or even a Democratic candidate running against her, they're going to bring that up. So that that issue is not going to be put to bed in the political arena, even after it's put to bed either way in the legal arena. And, you know, let's say she loses the case. Boy, that creates a huge opening, um, you know, for somebody to say this is the biggest case this office is, has ever really tried to tackle and um, and look what happened. So, yeah, I, I think the political fight is uh, is a fascinating, you know, side side issue here that is going to have enormous implications. Shannon, let me uh, pick up on that, but also a little bit more about the hearing on Friday. We already know we had two days of testimony in front of Judge McAfee, and and it was based on the testimony about when the relationship started, all the seamy details that the defense lawyers went after, which may have legitimate uh, uh, reasons for being introduced. I'm not suggesting they, they don't. But so McAfee 
has said, this Friday we'll have closing arguments and I'll take this under consideration. But now with his new cell phone question and the fact that it's complicated and there are people who would argue experts on one side who would say, yes, this is reasonable to conclude based on everything we know about how you track people through cell phones. Others who say, well, you never know. Is it conceivable that McAfee is going to need to hold a completely separate hearing to hear from uh, the experts on both sides on this as well? Or does this just play into the closing arguments this week? I think it's definitely conceivable. I mean, it, it just it's it, it whatever he determines, you know, whether I mean, if he's going to determine that this that this is admissible, um, it's likely to me that he would at least want to kind of air out some of these issues in in some kind of setting. Um, so it's really hard to tell. I mean, you know, this judge has has been um, very fair minded and and really tried to give both sides, um, you know, room to have their say. And so it's hard for me to that he would just, um, you know, enter this evidence based on on legal filings rather than actual documents. So who knows? There's also, I would, I would um, add, extremely difficult given the number of lawyers involved mm. to get anything on the calendar. And that's one reason why I think you're seeing, you know, something happen and then maybe a week and a half to two weeks happen, you know, go by before you um, set another hearing because you've got, you know, six, seven, eight lawyers uh, or legal teams, I should say, on the defense and, and then the DA's office as well. So it's a scheduling nightmare. Okay. So um, you and Greg have both raised the question of whether Fonnie Willis is more likely to face opposition, whether it's from a Republican in the general election. Could she have a primary challenge from a Democrat? L let me just extend this hypothetical. What happens if, in fact, Fonnie Willis's loses in November. We don't have any, I don't know that we have any reason to believe that the conspiracy case will be tried necessarily before the election. Is that at least a possibility that it won't happen before the election, Shannon? It's hard to imagine that okay. they could get all well, this together. Yeah. Okay. So then with that in mind, let's just hypothetically say Fonnie Willis, Willis loses the election. She is now a lame duck. What happens to that case? And would a new prosecutor have the ability to move forward or not? Does Fonnie Willis try this case as a lame duck? I know this is purely hypothetical, but at this point, there are so many things that are hypothetical. It's worth asking that question. Yeah, I mean, if if a Republican wins, I would say game over, um, yeah. most likely. Uh, but it, but you know, if a Democrat wins, who knows? You could have somebody who's who's feels very strongly about continuing this case, who who would be just as aggressive as uh, as Fonnie Willis has been. So you know, again, as you said, you know, we're, we're kind of building hypothetical upon hypothetical. But but it is it, it is interesting. I think if a Republican wins, though, game over. And one note to add there, I mean, you know, to say Fonnie Willis is the odds on favorite is an understatement. Yeah. This is a, a, a very blue county. Uh, there is a rallying uh, around the circling the bandwagon sort of circling the wagons effect going on right now with Fonnie Willis as well. It is very, very hard to see her facing any sort of real significant um, political threat. But again, any Republican who ends up running could get on Fox News, could raise a lot of money, could still be. A, a force in this race, even if they have no chance at winning. 
Tia, before we have to uh, say goodbye to Shannon, um, a couple other questions that I would love for, to have you pick up on, and then Shannon, please weigh in. One of the things that we talked about on the show on Friday when we first uh, got this uh, story in front of us is um, the Trump team, and Sadow, we know, is one of the top criminal lawyers in the South, if not in the country. They are throwing everything, everything they can at Fonnie Willis to discredit her. So whether this new cell phone data is in fact admissible, if it does prove anything at all, is in some ways beside the point. It is Part of this is an effort to completely discredit Fonnie Willis moving forward. Yes? Well, and I, I mean, yes. And again, that's kind of what defense attorneys are supposed to do is like find pathways for their clients to win. One of those pathways is, you know, breaking the case down before it even gets to trial, discrediting the prosecutor to get a more friendly prosecutor in place or, you know, a more friendly um, jurisdiction. So I don't, um, you know, I don't begrudge them for doing that, but that was going to bring me to my question, Bill, which is, as Bonnie Willis has said, it's almost drawn attention away from the case itself. You know, lately it's been about Bonnie Willis and Nathan Wade and not about the crux of the case. Is anything going on with that or is all that on hold, Shannon, until this Bonnie Willis and Nathan Wade issue gets resolved? You know, there are still, what, 15 defendants. Um, I for a while, it seemed like there were motions being filed and deals and, and, and things. But is anything going on or is it all about Fonnie Willis right now? If it is going on, we haven't written about it. Um, are you looking? <laughs> and, and I mean that I'm, I'm joking, but but at the same time, January 8th was when we originally got this motion from Ashley Merchant that, you know, sort of set this all in motion. And um, I, I would I would venture a guess that we've maybe written two or three stories since then um, based on actual Trump election interference news. Um, you know, there have been there have been, a, you know, a few developments here and there, but nothing significant. I mean, you know, one of the only other stories we wrote about uh, Rudy Giuliani uh, uh, is appealing his um, the defamation verdict against him in a separate case. So. So, yeah, I mean, all attention is on this. And and I, I really I, I think is going to be pretty much on hold until this gets decided. It's also worth noting, you know, Greg, as you were talking about the election calendar, um, you know, qualifying is the week of March, right? Is that mm -hmm. starts Monday? Yeah. And so, you know, we're going to have a uh, possibly on whether or not she's disqualified before qualifying. So it will be interesting because it would probably influence some people's decision on whether to run or not to run um, what the end decision is. And, and it's possible we could get one, but, um, but I don't know. It depends how fast McAfee uh, turns this decision around. Shannon, um, we really appreciate your taking the time to join us because you, you have been, as you pointed out just this weekend, incredibly busy on this case. And, and I want to tell people, if you don't listen to the breakdown, uh, the podcast that uh, Shannon and her team do about the Trump election conspiracy case, which they've been working on from the very beginning, uh, it's really a, a wonderful, wonderful podcast. and. Um, 
I just feel so proud to be a part of the team <laughs> that has all of you, Shannon, working on this story. You, you every week bring us uh, new exclusives on how things are developing. So thank you so much for being with us today, Shannon. Thank you. And I just want to say that, you know, it's the fantastic reporters I work with. Um, I, I have such a phenomenal team. So want to give them a shout out. Absolutely. Um, thanks, Shannon. Um, you know, T and Greg, before we take a break, I just want to pick up quickly and, and then we'll go to break on something that you and I exchanged uh, thoughts about, Tia. Um, yes, it's the, it's the work of a defense lawyer to try to undercut the prosecution's case against whoever the defendant is. But Greg, there are few defendants quite like Donald Trump. In most cases, these things happen privately, quietly, in court chambers, whatever. But when you have a Donald Trump, Greg, who is out there making racist comments about Fonnie Willis, trying to essentially undermine the pursuit of justice in Fulton County, suddenly it strikes me that these ongoing motions to discredit Fonnie Willis are part of a larger scheme that we don't see play out in many uh, cases in which defense attorneys are aggressive and just trying to do their job. Yeah, and unfortunately, it goes even beyond the racist comments, as, as bad as that, as bad as they are. It goes to death threats. It goes to the fact that Fannie Willis had to have a body double to leave the the announcement where she announced that Donald Trump and eighteen other co defendants were were being indicted. And for defense attorneys, delay, delay, delay is a victory, right? Every week they win of delay. Every time a judge sets another hearing in two weeks or another deadline for. Uh, for motions is a victory for the defense attorneys because the longer they can push this out, the more time it, you know, the closer to election we get. Tia, quick comment before the break. Um, I, I think we've said it all. I think that, you know, I'm kind of ready for Judge McAfee to go on and do what he's going to do. Let's, let's know what the next step is. Boy, that's for sure. I think we're all feeling incredibly impatient about that. All right. Um, obviously, there's a lot to come on this story. But when we come back from our first break, we're going to turn to the presidential race, the GOP presidential race. We know that Nikki Haley is campaigning in Michigan, which holds its primary uh, tomorrow. But after losing South Carolina over the weekend, what is her path forward? We're going to ask Haley's one of her most important supporters, Eric Tannenblatt. We'll be right back with the AJC's Politically Georgia. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut, along with co-hosts Tia Mitchell in Washington and Greg Bluestein coming to us today from Athens. We've got a great offer for Politically Georgia listeners. For a limited time, subscribe and you can get digital access to the AJC for $1.99 per week for life. Subscribe now by going to AJC.com slash start. That's AJC.com slash start. It's a great deal for a greater Atlanta. And by the way, this is for new subscribers only. I'm Bill Nygut along with co-hosts Tia Mitchell, who's in back in Washington. Greg Bluestein comes to us from Athens. A little later, we're going to talk about why you were in Athens this morning to um, hear Governor Kemp uh, give a talk in front of the Chamber of Commerce out there. Um, and we'll get to that a little bit later in the show. But in the meantime, we're also joined right now by a great friend of this 
show over a very long time, Eric Tannenblatt. Um, Eric is um, a, uh, a co-chair of Nikki Haley's uh, Financial Committee, national co-chair, and has been with Nikki Haley from the very start. Eric, we're really glad to welcome you to the show uh, today. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, glad to be here. I'm glad to see Greg again. I, I had the pleasure of running into him on the streets of Charleston over the weekend. Yeah. Yeah, I saw you a couple of times over the weekend. So, Eric, uh, the obvious question is this. Nikki Haley loses South Carolina by a wide margin. It's her home state. She continues to say she's pushing forward. She's in Michigan campaigning for tomorrow's uh, primary. Things don't look great for her there either, if you believe the polls. So the question becomes, what is her path forward? What is now the, her um, basic argument for staying in this race? Well, look, I mean, she started this race at, you know, 2% with 13, you know, opponents. And now it's down to her and, and President Trump and or former President Trump. And it, I think it's interesting that there hadn't been a whole lot of talk about the fact that going into the South Carolina primary, which Trump was always ahead, uh, people, including President Trump, were saying that he was going to win by 30 to 35 percent. And basically, he won by 20 percent. And yes, a win is a win. But I think you have to look at uh, why was it only 20 percent and why, to your question, is Nikki Haley continuing? And that's because there's clearly a movement out there and there's a segment uh, of the electorate and in particular Republican primary electorate that uh, they don't want to see a rematch of Trump and Biden. And, you know, there's national polls, poll after poll. There was one last week that, you know, shows, you know, 60, 70 percent of the people don't want a rematch. She beats Biden by a much larger margin than President Trump. She'd be a much stronger uh, uh, general election uh, candidate. And, you know, people behind her, Greg was there. I mean, it, it almost felt like an election, you know, victory party with the energy in the room. I've been to a lot of election parties. I mean, she didn't win in South Carolina. And obviously, uh, it was disappointing, given that it's her her home state. But she has a lot of very passionate uh, supporters. You may or may not know this. I think the media has reported this. She raised a million dollars in the 24 hours since Saturday. So there's clearly people that, you know, want to see her continue to go on. She said earlier in the week that she was going to go through Super Tuesday and and she's, you know, holding true to uh, her word. Now, she said Saturday, I thought this was a good line when she said 40 percent is not uh, a tiny group of people. That's a pretty significant group of people. And I don't think that whoever the nominee, if President Trump's the nominee, he cannot win the general election uh, if that 40 percent's not with him. Eric, real quick question. And then I would tee and, and Greg, I know you want to jump in. At, at the same time, um, we know today that she has now lost uh, uh, the support of the Koch brothers, Americans for Prosperity. And you all in your campaign touted how exciting that was, how meaningful it was that the Koch brothers had decided to put their money uh, behind Nikki Haley. And now after South Carolina, they've said, we're going to start focusing instead on Senate races, congressional races. We're not going to be giving more money to the Haley campaign. 
Yeah, well, well, first of all, let me just clarify that they also said in their statement that they still endorse Nikki Haley and they're behind Nikki Haley. What they stopped doing, what they did do is divert their funding. Now, in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina, you know, there was a lot of time leading up to those primaries. So they had people on the ground helping from a grassroots standpoint. We now have 21 states. I don't know how much of a difference they're going to make in 21 states in less than a week. And so I think the fact, I think it's telling, though, that they're not giving up in terms of funding races and they're diverting their energy to the House and the Senate, because I think that there's a a real fear that if President Trump is the nominee, there's several House and Senate races that are going to be uh, in jeopardy because he's not the strongest general election candidate for uh, the Republicans. And I know firsthand from talking to candidates that are members of Congress, especially in the New York area, that they don't want to see him as the top at the top of the ticket, because I think that's going to hurt their races. Tia? Eric, I really appreciate you coming on here and helping explain Haley World to us. But I need you to help me because you're making a very powerful general election argument for Nikki Haley, which is that she polls well better against um President Biden. A lot of people don't want to see the Biden-Trump rematch. But that doesn't speak to the fact that in the primary, not only has Nikki Haley not won a state, there, the New York Times just posted an hour ago, I'm sure you've seen it, that says there is, it's the, the headline says, delegate math and the futility of Haley's challenge to Trump. Futility that the math is not mathing. So my question is, what is the plan? Because you're making a general election argument about a candidate who doesn't seem to have a path to getting on the general election ballot. Yeah, that's a, that, look, that's a, that's a fair uh, point to raise. But keep in mind, Tia, that only four states have voted. And we live in a democracy. We don't live in Russia. And, you know, 21 states are going to vote in Super Tuesday. So let's get a little further into the process before closing this down. And as you all know, being political reporters in politics, you know, one event can change a whole lot. And so let's not shut this thing down. Uh, You know, she's committed to going through Super Tuesday and hopefully beyond. Uh, But I think that's just part of our political process. And I just think that voters have a right to vote and you don't shut this thing down after four states when you have to get to 1,215 or whatever the number is of delegates to secure the nomination. Donald Trump has 100. And at some point, yeah, you will get closer to that number, but you're not there yet. And I think Super Tuesday is going to go a long way. When we asked, when our AJC colleague Patricia Murphy asked Nikki Healy directly if she stay in the race, through Georgia's March 12th primary. She only committed to staying in the contest until March 5th. We'll see what happens. But Eric, my bigger question is one that will resonate in Georgia is where do Nikki Haley supporters wind up if she gets out of the race? What's your sense of where Nikki Haley backers do? Do they gravitate toward Donald Trump? Do they vote for a third party candidate? Do they begrudgingly back Joe Biden or do they stay home? Well, I'm not drawing the conclusion that Nikki Haley is not going to be the nominee. Sure, I will. But 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 I will talk uh, just in in more general broad terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of independent voters. There's a lot of suburban voters. A lot of women voters. And 
Greg, you saw some of the women from Georgia that even went to South Carolina to help her. They were that, like the life of the party, Eric. <laughs> yeah, they, they, won't, they, they, they won't support President Trump, at least right now, uh, in, a, in a general election. And I think that's a real problem. The fact that 40% of the people supported Nikki Haley, as she said, that's not a tiny group of people. And, you know, having been, and this shows my age, involved in so many presidential elections and primaries, you know, there's a process that takes place when a candidate gets out to get their supporters over. And there's there's outreach that takes place uh, to try and, you know, unify the party. And, you know, in the case of, of President Trump, you know, some of the things he's done are, you know, pretty damaging, will be hard to you know, bring people uh, in the fold. You personally, if you wake up in the bad, for you, bad news that Nikki Haley's gotten out of the race, could you see yourself supporting Donald Trump? Well, I think it's uh, it's going to be a real uh, dilemma for me because I, you know, I'm not going to support President Biden. I don't know that I've ever voted for uh, a Democrat. And I think that his presidency uh, is not, what it could have been and what I believe in. But I have some, you know, serious issues, policy issues, you know, put personality aside. And I do have some personality, you know, some issues with Trump personally, but I don't agree with where he is on the on the Ukraine. Uh, and I think that that is really dangerous. I think it's dangerous for the for the national security of our country. Um, quite honestly, I'm not sure he's fiscally liberal. I think he's fiscally liberal. I mean, think about the debt and the deficit under uh, his presidency, he's he refuses, like you know, a lot of the Democrats, to address the entitle entitlements, which are just killing uh, our country. And I think you have to be intellectually honest with people that we need to reform Social Security, and he doesn't want to touch that. I also think putting a ten percent tariff on all imports, I have a real issue with that, and I think that's going to hurt the middle class uh, in a, in a in a big way. And, you know, also, I, I and this is a little bit personal, too, because I have, you know, members of my family that have served in the military. I think attacking the military, the way he attacked Nikki Haley's wife, the way he has made comments over the years, even when he was president. I think when you attack one person in the military, you're attacking all members of the military and their families. So I have a lot of issues, as you can tell. And so it's going to take some convincing. So I'm, I've, I'll be in a real dilemma. Hopefully, I won't have to be in that dilemma. And, and Nikki Haley will surprise people. Is there's a lot of talk, Eric, about you know if the math does not work for Nikki Haley, and we've said we'll know a lot after Super Tuesday, which is a week from tomorrow. Right? Am I looking at the calendar? Yeah. That's so exactly. um, after Super Tuesday, we'll know a lot. Is it part of the calculus for supporters like you to keep Nikki Haley in the conversation should there need to be some brokering later in this summer around the convention if Trump becomes the presumptive nominee? But by the time it's by the convention, when it's time to make it official, are you guys kind of keeping her as a plan B should that need come up? Well, I don't know that uh, at least I'm not thinking that uh, long term. I mean, right now she's she's running for president and she is an important voice in our party. And regardless of what happens with the presidential contest, 
I hope she's around for a long time because she represents the next generation of leadership in our party. Her voice is needed in in in, in a variety of ways. And so uh, I don't think it has anything to do with the convention. I just hope long term that Nikki Haley is someone that we can all look to uh, in the Republican Party in the future. Uh, so, Eric, I'd like to do a little fact check on a comment, a couple of comments you made a minute ago. Um, you talked about Biden uh, running up the debt. Uh, I think you know Trump. Trump. No, I, I was I'm talking. So, oh, yeah. oh, oh, oh! I was I talking about my issue, issues. I apologize. I apologize. Yeah. I apologize. He, he drove us. It, 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 look, it's a Democratic and Republican issue. It's not just, and it's not just Donald Trump because his enablers in Congress also supported that. Gotcha. Okay, thank you for uh, clarifying <laughs> that. I misheard the way you said that. Um, so, Eric, to a certain extent. For people like like you and so many of the Republicans that we know around you, people like a Sam Olins, people like an Ed Lindsay and any number of others who just have never been able to get on the Trump train. It feels to me that in some ways, Nikki Haley, who I think is being pretty courageous in the way she continues to fight uh, Donald Trump, uh, is an avatar for the anti-Trump Republicans out there. But unfortunately, you're no longer the mainstream of the Republican Party. And neither is Nikki Haley, given how she's gone after Donald Trump, when the party is more MAGA than ever, a week after next, or maybe later next week, um, there'll be a change in the RNC. It's going to be a MAGA-dominated RNC. What do you say about maybe making her an avatar for what you would like to think could happen, but just isn't likely to. Look, you know, a long time ago, my, my mentor in politics, and I think, Bill, you're probably the only one that knew him personally, was Paul Coverdale, mm. the late Paul Coverdale. And he always told me that if you don't win a fight, that doesn't mean you stop fighting. And so I truly believe that the fundamental core of what the Republican Party stands for is going to be around for a long time. And, you know, I, I would I would tell people that are Nikki Haley supporters, they need to keep fighting the fight and where the party may be taking certain positions right now. And maybe that's the popular position. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that you shouldn't raise, uh, you know, an alternative voice if it's outside of the the the, the mainstream. And look, the Republican Party right now uh, unfortunately, uh, right. It, 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 Donald Trump is the leader of the Republican Party. And, you know, Donald Trump's not going to be around forever. And so it's important to have other voices that are out there. We're here with Eric Tannenblatt, a veteran Republican strategist in Georgia, a Nikki Haley supporter, also someone who's very close to Governor Brian Kemp. And, and Eric, it strikes me that as March 12th nears, not only will we be talking about, you know, Trump and and Haley in Georgia, but also we'll be focusing more attention on where Governor Kemp stands in all this because he has pointedly stayed on the sidelines so far. He said that he said he has no problem with Nikki Haley staying in the race and that voters should have their choice. But he also hasn't endorsed Nikki Haley yet, despite his longstanding feud or at least the one sided feud that Donald Trump has is focused on him. Does that surprise you at all that the governor is still sort of on the sidelines? And what what role do you think he'll play in the general election? Um, well, look, I think uh, Governor Kemp is very well respected, uh, not just in Georgia, but uh, around the country. I don't I don't envision 
him uh, playing a big role in the next two weeks in Georgia, other than the comments that he's already made, where he, you know, encourages Nikki Haley to uh, to stay in the race. But I think, you know, uh, his voice, voices like the Glenn Youngkins of the world, voices like the Nikki Haley's of the world, I think their voices need to continue uh, to be out there uh, in in the in the public debate. I mean, I I, I used the word enablers earlier. But I think there's far too many uh, elected officials today that fear for their own personal political survival that they're enabling uh, uh, the Trump, uh, President Trump, and they're not willing to stand up. And I think voices that uh, are willing to stand up and be courageous, uh, to use a word that Bill used earlier, I think is... uh, is really important. And look, let me let me be clear too. There are certain policies. There's probably far more policies that I agree with from the first Trump uh, administration than I do in the current uh, Biden administration. But there are a good number of differences that I have with the former president right now, which is why uh, I'm enthusiastically supporting Nikki. I want to, um, Eric, kind of follow up on that because you hear a lot of people who raise their concerns about Trump and say all the things that they're troubled by, both from a policy standpoint, but also from personality or character concerns. And we see Nikki Haley sharpen her attacks on Trump along those lines recently. But a lot of these same Republicans have either said flat out, if he's the nominee and it's him versus Biden, they're going with Trump. I know you you haven't gone that far, but you've also said you wouldn't vote for Biden no matter what. How do you reconcile that? That's something I'm just so curious about, how the same Republicans who have so much to say negative about Trump and, and not just negative about Trump saying he's wrong, he's bad for America, but then they'll still turn around and say, but I'll vote for him. Yeah, look, I, 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 I can't comment on those people that, you know, are supporting someone else other than Trump that say they're going to su- support Trump. I can only comment uh, on myself. But I, look, I've been involved. And in 2008, I supported Mitt Romney. He lost to John McCain in the primary. But Mitt Romney then uh, helped lead us all to then go support John McCain. And I was I was happy to do that. Um, I've been involved in other primaries where I was on the losing side and ended up having to, uh, you know, help the other candidate. And in, 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 I guess it was 2016. I was a Jeb Bush guy. But I will tell you, I never got involved in the in the Donald Trump campaign. Donald Trump is a very different, I think, political uh, figure than some of these others that, that I've talked about in the past. And I think the um, the way that uh, President Trump President Trump's supporters uh, reach out to others, supporters of other campaigns uh, will dictate how unified uh, the party will be. Look, you could have differences on one or two issues with a, with a particular candidate, but I think it's the combination of all of that that will determine uh, whether someone gets on board uh, and unifies. And at least uh, the 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 comments that are being made by the former president and his supporters towards those that oppose him uh, are not very welcoming. And in including the the comments he made about, you know, Nikki Haley's husband, you know, being gone and, and the attacks on the on the military or telling people if you support 
Nikki Haley, you're never going to be invited to be part of MAGA. Well, some people don't want that invitation. Eric Tannenblatt, we're out of time. Uh, I know you rearranged your schedule this morning to be able to spend time with us, and we always love having you on this show. I love hearing you talk just a little bit about your past in politics. You and I, I've followed you politically for over 30 years. And uh, as I I said, we always like hearing your observations. So thank you, Eric, for being with us on Politically Georgia today. Thank you. Anytime. Um, Tia and Greg, one really quick thing, because we do have to move on, but this is important. Tomorrow's Democratic primary in Michigan has genuine significance beyond perhaps the Republican primary. There is a movement, especially in the Dearborn area, where there are a lot of Arab Americans, to turn out Democrats to uh, vote not for Joe Biden, but to make a choice to not uh, affiliate with any candidate. Uh, Greg, that could be a crucial election for President Biden in a state that he absolutely must win in the fall. Yeah, Michigan might end up getting a lot more attention than even Georgia will will get in November. And the other, as you mentioned, there's that movement to vote uncommitted. Uncommitted. Um, It's a signal, a clear signal. uh, If if uncommitted gets a lot of traction, a clear signal that uh, that many in the Democratic Party, as if the polls weren't enough, to show us uh, are not uh, are not supportive of President Biden's stance on the Israel-Gaza war. All right. Well, we, we will be talking more about Michigan in the next couple of days on the show. In the meantime, we got to get to our final break of Politically Georgia. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about the awful tragedy of the death of Larkin Riley in Athens and how Republicans are responding to it here. Governor Kemp, Republicans in the legislature, Um, both of whom are talking about new measures to crack down on undocumented immigrants. We'll talk about that with Tia and Greg after these messages. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from the AJC politics team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters to sign up today. That's AJC.com newsletters. The tragic homicide of Lake and Riley, a student on the campus of the University of Georgia, um, by a man who is apparently an undocumented immigrant. The feds are, are calling him that, um, and, perha- and that, that may very well be true, but we're looking for complete confirmation of that, has led to some obvious political reaction as well. Republicans in the legislature are, are going to have to move quickly. They're looking at the possibility of introducing new legislation um, that would target undocumented immigrants. Uh, Greg, you were in Athens this morning. We already know, based on your reporting, that Governor Kemp has sent a letter to President Biden saying shut down the border immediately. And this morning he had more to say. 
with a in in front of a group of the Chamber of Commerce of Athens, right? Yeah, and I think we have audio. But before we play that audio, I want to say just how quickly this debate has changed. Because just a few weeks ago, when I interviewed Governor Kemp and asked him, um, you know, he had gone down to the border, uh, U.S. border in Texas, to um, to basically highlight issues with the federal uh, enforcement of border controls, and. Uh, Governor Kemp, I asked him whether or not he supported any state action. He said, no, you know, he said, this is a federal issue. Well, now it looks like there are multiple ways here in Georgia. The Republican leaders are looking to crack down illegal immigration. There's one policy that will be closely following, uh, uh, basically forcing counties to coordinate with federal immigration uh, authorities. Athens, Clark County, where this, where this homicide took place, uh, is not one of those counties that is that is uh, cooperating with uh, with uh, with federal enforcement authorities on 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 some of their detainees, and of course, there's another push to basically crack down to have stiffer penalties on people who are here illegally, who are convicted of crimes. But let's play that audio from Governor Kemp uh, in a second. Lakin's death is a direct result of failed policies on the federal level and an unwillingness by this White House to secure the southern border. We need to demand better from this administration, and that's something that I've been doing since I've taken office, along with other governors across the country. And we've renewed that call multiple times, including again this weekend when I sent a letter to the president demanding more information on the illegal immigrants in our country, where they are, and if they've broken any of our laws. Um, Tia, let's look at this, too, from the point of view of a fact check. Um, it is certainly true that, that early on President Biden didn't, didn't address the border the way that many people think he should have. But it is also true that was up on your beat. It was only a matter of a week or so ago when Republicans in the House turned down a compromise, bipartisan compromise, that would have added to border security in a major way. Yeah. Um, and I know we're running out of time and we're going to be talking about this more throughout the week on the podcast and radio show. But at the end of the day. Border security is a federal issue. So it's up to, yes, the president does have certain um, actions that at his disposal. But if we want new laws, more restrictions at the border, Congress has to act. And that's where the logjam has been basically for 40 years. And there was an attempt to get new laws passed this year. It was negotiated in a bipartisan fashion, but House Republicans didn't think it goes far enough. And there are real disagreements. That's part of kind of how politics works. But the goal is to get something done. Um, I want to talk more about the the man who's accused of killing um, Lakin is um, someone from Venezuela, which is one of those asylum countries. But he was on parole in, in immigration policy. Parole is when someone seeks asylum, but their application is pending. And under current law, they are allowed to remain in the United States. And again, under current law, with the influx of migrants and the lack of funding, those applications are pending for months and years. And part and of the border where, security compromise would have 
added money for for more judges right. to deal with those asylum would have added money would have changed some of those policies for seeking asylum and who could seek asylum and in the standards for being um uh being approved as someone who is worthy of being of gaining asylum in the US um now again there this wouldn't have helped someone who's already here and um it does look like he entered while Biden was president um you can talk about that but that's current law which allowed him to remain in the United States while his application is pending. Greg, among other things, crossover day is approaching toward the end of this week. So legislation is going to be hurried. What can they actually do in Georgia with the legislative effort? Yeah. And remember, crossover day is a internal deadline. But if Republican leaders want to defy it, they can. Yeah, there's always a way can. around of crossover course. day. But there is a deadline and there is a deadline. And, 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 you know, there's only a few weeks left in the session. But there's a few things they can do. If one, they could they could enact new crackdowns, stiffer penalties on 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 people who are in the country illegally who are convicted of crimes. But they could also force counties to coordinate and cooperate with uh, federal immigration authorities. Athens has been a top target, but there's a few other counties that don't do that. They could tie that to funding. They could tie that to, uh, to, to new mandates. And there could also be legislation that has been pending for a while to restrict a constitutional amendment to ban non-citizens from voting. That's been out there in the, uh, in the ecosystem for a long time. That might pass this year, uh, even though it's already illegal. Right. It's already illegal. We need to make illegal. sure we this say that. Be, this would just be a constitutional amendment on top of that. Yes, good point. Yeah. All right. So clearly we are going to be following this story as it moves forward in the days and weeks ahead, not only in the legislature, but also, of course, our thoughts and prayers go out to the family of Lakin Riley. She was apparently a wonderful young woman um, whose life was ended far too soon. So we'll be thinking about Lakin Riley, her family, her friends, those who knew her. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. Or you can continue following Politically Georgia just like you're doing right now on your favorite podcast app. You'll hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.